Okay. Hebrews 12, chapter 12, verses 4 to 17. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Well, that's a struggle, but have you ever been through struggles in life that, even without romanticizing them, you are in the end glad that you went through those struggles? Times that really were genuine hardship, but you wouldn't change them for the world. So thanks, Hilton. So for me, I remember when I started work at the Royal Adelaide as a radiographer and doing night shifts. And my colleagues there were like saying, oh, this is so busy. This is the busiest shift I've ever done. And I was thinking, in my job in Manchester, it was much harder. Because at the RAT, it was much better resourced um, there was more staff on at night, and it was more controlled. Two and maximum three patients at once. And it was only, even if it was really busy, it was only about for eight hours. Whereas when I worked in Manchester, it was for 12 hours, and you had no control over us in the waiting room. So a busy night was always more people than you could get through in your waiting room all night. It was like the Lion King, you know. There's more to see than can ever be seen, more to do than can ever be done. One of those shifts. But that experience of being too busy left me confident that I could handle just about anything uh, and gave me a resilience that I still feel like I've got today. 
Uh, also, growing up, um, we always had, I had, I'm from a big family, but we also always had at least one foster child, which was really rewarding, great thing to do, but often brought lots of challenges, lots of chaos, lots of heartache. But I'm glad we went through it. I feel like it's helped me to be calm in crises. It's helped me to understand people better, have more compassion, helped me to um, have been up close and personal with how awful people can be to each other in a way that was relatively safe for me. So struggle being, in the end, a good thing. In today's passage, the author to the Hebrews is encouraging his audience to understand the hardship they're going through for following Jesus, to see that as a good thing. So the original audience is Christians from a Jewish background facing rejection, slander, and even loss of property for being Christian. And so it's really tempting for them to give up on Jesus. But today we'll see that that kind of suffering is suffering that can encourage us and build us up rather than dragging us down. And that it can be all the more encouraging as we go through everything together. Together. So just two halves today. First, be encouraged by hardship. And second, be encouraged by each other. Be encouraged by hardship. Be encouraged by each other. So first, encouraged by hardship. Well, first of all, we're to be encouraged by Jesus' hardship. So we're picking up at verse 4, but we've seen, um, we've been encouraged to fix our eyes on Jesus, look to his example as the one who went first, as the pioneer and perfecter of faith. How Jesus endured suffering all the way to the cross, and not justly, but at the hands of sinners. So compare all of that that Jesus went through, Jesus said, um, the author says, to your own suffering. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, You've not resisted to the point of of shedding your blood. So be encouraged that our hardship hasn't yet got as tough as Jesus' hardship. And our struggle isn't anywhere near as bad as our brothers and sisters around the world, is it? And be encouraged that suffering doesn't mean that we've got things wrong. Jesus pioneered and perfected being he was like the ideal man of faith his trust in God was the greatest the most obedient and yet he suffered the most so we're standing in a great tradition so be encouraged by Jesus own hardship and be encouraged that it shows that we are one of God's family it shows that we're one of God's family verse 5 Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. That's quoting Proverbs 3. Um, Now, females, I don't want you to put off by the son there. Um, it's not excluding women. Really, what it really means is the legitimate heir of the family household. So enduring hardship for Jesus, struggling against sin by following Jesus, well, it's, it's easy to see that 
um, to default to seeing that as a bad thing to be minimized and avoided. But actually, we're to see it as something else. Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. So in the ancient world, um, once you are no longer considered a child, well, if you weren't born or adopted into the family, well, the head of the household had no responsibility to discipline you. So being disciplined by hardship is a good thing because it marks us out as children of God. It tells us that we're part of God's family. We are heirs of his grace. So a father disciplines his children. We don't go around disciplining other people's children, generally, do we? I mean, have you tried to do that? Goes down like a lead balloon. Really. Try, it, try it over morning tea. You know? Or if, you, if you're friends with kids, go and try and teach them some manners. See how it goes. They'll love it. They'll really thank you for it. Don't do it. They won't. But we expect parents to discipline and train their children, don't we? That's kind of normal. When we first moved to Australia... We learn a new word in relation to children. Feral. Feral kids, people talked about. What do you mean? You know, oh, that neighbor just lets the kids run riot. They're feral. So we understand what a lack of discipline results in. We aren't against a a parent telling their child to stop juggling knives. We aren't even against... A teenager being made to feel like they're suffering when they're grounded and really missing out, we think that's an okay thing to do because we know that their peers are setting up patterns and habits that will cause them to struggle for decades. We are God's children, so he disciplines us. He's treating us like he treated Jesus. Now, I mentioned before, when you say the word discipline, it can conjure up lots of negative connotations. And we, te- we can tend to think of disciplinarians, can't we? And if you've suffered at the hands of parents or others who have been cruel or abusive in the name of discipline, I'm really sorry that you've been through that. But that's not the kind of discipline that God is. That's not the kind of discipline our author's on about. And in verse 9 and 10, he compares and contrasts human fathers trying to do their best and earning our respect. And if a good father can do that well, he says, then how much more then should we submit to God, who is perfectly loving and holy, who will never overdo or underdo our discipline? So perhaps instead of thinking of disciplinarians when we heard the word discipline, we can think of instead of Discipleship. Discipleship. It's the same root word. And we like the idea of discipleship, don't we? Our struggling against sin and suffering hardship for Jesus, that marks us as part of the family. And it builds us up in the family likeness. Makes us part of the family and builds us in the family likeness. Because struggle and hardship for following Jesus, it's like God's gymnasium for making us more like Jesus. 
Verse 10. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So our spiritual reality, our ultimate future, is that we've been made perfect and holy, able to approach God with confidence. But in the here and now, God doesn't leave us as feral kids. You know, there's no spoilt brats in Christianity. God will sometimes let us go through hardship to make sure that we don't turn out as immature, feral brats. So when you go through struggles, struggling against sin, making life really hard, when you lose face or money or friends or time for following Jesus, ask yourself, how is this disciplining me? How is this training and growing me in holiness? How is this making me more like Jesus? Okay, so that's our first half. Be encouraged by hardship. And now, our second half, be encouraged by each other. So, verses 12 to 16, they've got a real kind of collective vibe about them. A kind of a let's do all this together. So, verse 14, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Verse 15, see to it, like all of you, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. See to it that no bitter root grows up. In verse 16, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. But how? How do we see to all that together? How, for example, are we supposed to see to it that no one is sexually immoral? What I thought I'd do now is um, do a question, get in pairs and you'll do a questionnaire. No, we won't do <laughs> Can you imagine? How do we really, how do we... How do we see to it knowing it's sexual and moral? It would make for a very awkward morning tea, wouldn't it? Well, what we need to do is hit the highway, the holy highway together. So we're going to go back to verses 12 and 13. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. So verse 12 is quoting Isaiah 35, which is a kind of a, a beautiful song or poem about salvation, about God saving everyone in the end, saving us in the end. Uh, some highlights from there, um, from Isaiah 35. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And we pick it up in verse 8. And a highway will be there. So this is our roots and our scenery as we go along the way, growing in holiness together. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will, be, will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow will, and sighing will flee away. 
this is the road that we are on now together. Uh, the second uh, verse, the next bit, verse 13, is quoting, uh, alluding to Proverbs 4. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. So me knowing you, being here with you, and that's what you're trying to do, that's an encouragement to me. And each of us, as we stay on this path, not turning to the right or the left, when everybody else is doing that, is an encouragement to one another. We've been made holy by Jesus' sacrifice for us. So we're running our race on this road of salvation together. Egging each other on, appreciating the scenery every Sunday, the joy and the fulfillment, keeping each other on track, having our eyes open to things of God, doing all that together helps one another, doesn't it? It's as we go through our struggles together, we encourage one another. Verse 14, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So make every effort, strive. So there's nothing passive about being a Christian. There's no let go and let God. Now for sure, God does give the growth. God does change us from the inside out by his spirit. But we are called for our part. We're to try really, really hard. I mean, there's lots of things in life we are happy to work hard on. Work, um, our family, sports, school, whatever it is. Well, are you willing to work that hard at living in peace with one another? Because I think we're going to need to work hard at the moment, aren't we? I mean, COVID's just the latest thing. There's always something that could divide us. COVID's just the latest thing. As COVID cases rise, all the feelings and the anxiety we have about it and our differences about it, well, they're probably going to rise to the surface a bit more. And we need to be careful that they don't divide us. So everyone here will have a stance on COVID, on vaccines and the rest of it. And the differences between our stances have the potential to distract and divide us. So we need to make not just a bit of a try, not just have a bit of tolerance, no. We need to make every effort to live in peace. Every effort. I'll do a quick plug, I've got a slide, I think, Graham, for a podcast that I found really helpful. I hope I put it in. Yes, it's called, if you just Google it, You're Not Crazy on Gospel Coalition. So to an English pastor and an American pastor, the podcast series is great. It's about gospel culture. It's about how knowing the gospel message doesn't just convert us. It actually changes everything about us and our culture and everything. But this particular episode is about gentleness and grace. So I encourage you to, I'll put a link in the next email, but I encourage you to just Google You're Not Crazy Gospel Coalition. Um, and find that episode. Okay, plug over. So we to make every effort to live in peace and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, I can hear you 
thinking, hang on, haven't we just in previous sermons been, I told you that you're already perfect and holy. Uh, Hebrews 10.10, we've been made holy through the, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So yes, absolutely. Positionally, status-wise, such that we can approach God with confidence, by grace, we are holy. But as grace comes in, the fruit of that grace is holiness flowing out. If we really mean it, if our trust is in Jesus, and we have sincere saving faith, we will be transformed and will want to be transformed. We'll never settle for how our sort of holiness level until we die. Our own holiness won't earn us our salvation, but it is the fruit of our salvation. And without holiness, we will not see heaven. So it's a case of living out, being who we are. We are holy, so be holy. Verse 15. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now that bitter root, I thought that, you know, just on surface reading, I thought, I mean, you know, don't bear grudges. But no, it doesn't mean that. It's referring to Deuteronomy 29, where the bitter root, what that actually is, is presuming upon God's grace with no care for holiness. You know, so, ah, look, I'm one of God's people, so I, I can do what I want, really. So complacently treasuring sin while expecting to be saved from it. That's what the bitter root is. And it's like a root because it begins hidden and it springs up. And the danger is it spreads, getting others to think the same way. But instead, back in Hebrews 3, we heard, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. That's what it means to fall short of grace. To have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So we're to see to it, make it our business to be alongside one another, able to speak into one another's lives in such a way that we can work through our doubts and our difficulties together. That we can, so that we can call each other out on treating God's grace like it came cheaply, but remaining at peace with one another. So, for example, verse 16, how do each of us see to it that no one is sexually immoral? Well, just being around people regularly who also draw their sexual boundaries from the Bible and not just from what our culture says is okay, just not being alone in that, in being weird like that, that helps, doesn't it? How else? Well, we can be, all be committed to making sure nobody's lonely, either in a marriage or out of a marriage. We can all be committed to supporting our married people in their marriages. We can all make sure that we don't idolize romantic companionship 
as if the Bible hasn't said that you're actually you're better off single. We can build relationships where we can confess sin so that we can stop pretending and sin loses its power over us. Now all that sounds hard work, but it's not as hard work as trying to stay sexually moral on your own. And finally, the warning is not to be like Esau. So Esau was supposed to be a really important patriarch figure. Instead, Jacob gets the gig because Esau gave up the promise of blessing that he had from God. He had no care for this totally secure future with God because all he could think about was his current problem. He was really hungry after a day out hunting. Now, we've all been hangry, haven't we? You know, you're hungry. All you can, I can relate. If you see me having a blank look, there's no information going in, I'm hungry. Well, that's usually why I've got a blank look. But, but the author's point is, be encouraged in your disciplining hardship. Don't give up on Jesus to solve temporary suffering. You know, so Esau gave it all up because he was hungry. We're going to be under real pressure, but don't give up because of that. Because in the end, without the promises we have in Jesus, our suffering will be much greater and much longer. Verse 17, Afterward, as you know, when Esau went to inherit his blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. It was too late. There was no turning back. And there is a point at which it becomes too late to turn to Jesus. Either you die or Jesus returns. So if you haven't turned from living for yourself, trying to save yourself, if you've not turned to Jesus believing in him to save you don't leave it it's urgent you need this rescue to bring you to God without him you'll spend eternity without God and any of his goodness and the Bible is clear that that is the last thing that you want but absolutely what all of us deserve So I wonder if sometimes we give up on trying to be holy and trying to help each other be holy because deep down we don't really think it's possible. We don't really think we'll see any progress. Often you see, I've seen it often expressed in supposedly Christian memes saying things like, oh, love me, love my mess. God loves me in my messiness. And really, things like that are just trying to make sin look like, well, they're just trying to put a shine on sin. They're trying to stop sin looking as stinking and evil and selfish and self-centered as it really is. So should we just stay stuck in our messiness or whatever you want to call it? Like we're not really going to progress. Well, if you think about it, God as our 
loving, perfect Father who never gets disciplined too much or too little. The Lord disciplines the ones he loves, it says. So God must reckon it's worthwhile, a worthwhile thing to do for us. God thinks we can be trained to share in his holiness. So next time you suffer hardship, remember, God is putting in the effort to grow us, to grow in us not bitter roots of not really caring, but roots of, but growing us a harvest of righteousness and peace. And he's given us each other to encourage one another in running our race down that holy highway of salvation. So let's see to it. See to it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are perfect at discipline. We don't like going through hard times. It's painful. It's unpleasant. But we trust that you will grow us, grow in us that harvest of righteousness and holiness so that we can be more like our brother Jesus, confident that he will, he makes it so we can approach you in person and part of your family. Amen.